Thank you so much for making time for me, Mr. Penrose. Ms. Wolfe, I have gone through the manuscript of your fantasy novel, Lady of the Bracelet. Yes, yes, the unforgettable story of women who banded together to get rid of the bracelet of empowerment because it was too empowering. Nobody could control it. Readers will thrill to the wisdom of Woman Dolph the Wizard and the archery of Lady Parts the Elf. Ms. Wolfe, I fear your manuscript is not what we're looking for here at Penrose Quality Science Fiction Books. Why not? It is a thinly disguised rewrite of Lord of the Rings, with the sex of each character changed from male to female. I suppose there are, you know, there's there's a few similarities here and there. No, Miss Wolfe, not similarities. For example, your protagonist is identical to Frodo the Hobbit, but for the fact that you've changed his name to Maureen. Well, how about the ending? I mean, that's totally different. Ah, yes, the ending. That's where the sistership of the bracelet returns that item to Flordor for store credit. Because it makes them look fat. Ms. Wolf, it pains me to say it, but this ending traffics in gender stereotypes our readers would find offensive. See, but that's why women don't read speculative fiction. It has nothing in it for them. You're the same publisher who turned down my earlier novel, Guganithra, Secretary to Elrond, about the female elf who booked all the travel arrangements for the Fellowship of the Ring but then left her chilly affair with Elrond for the warm embrace of a lesbian dwarf named... Stop. I remember that manuscript all too well. Ms. Wolf. the problem is not that we at Penrose Quality Science Fiction Books are sexist, but that you are a terrible writer. Oh, that's the same lie the male publishing establishment told to Jacqueline Boing Boing. Uh, who is that? Well, she was my cellmate at the Correctional Institute. I have this fictional memoir based on our relationship, but it's set in an outer space animal shelter where humans are the animals and giant Dalmatians are the jailers. Do you want to read it? Uh, slide it over. Today on the show, women writers expand their reach into speculative fiction. And now the author of Spoon. It's just like Dune, but with flatware instead of sandworms. Colin McEnroe. Because you like sandworms anyway. I mean, there's something very upsetting about sandworms. All right. So we're going to be talking today about um, the role of women in what is now called speculative fiction, which I think, which I understand to be a big kind of umbrella term that includes science fiction, but a lot of other kinds of uh, of fiction. Well, actually, I should be asking the guests what it means. What am I? Why am I trying to define it? So let me tell you who the guests are, and we'll tell you a little bit more about what we'll be talking about. A lot of what we'll be talking about today derives from, or at least can be looked at through the lens of this anthology, Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative fiction anthology. Uh, Anne Vandermeer is the publisher and editor who co-edited that anthology with her husband, Jeff. They both actually have been on our show before, around this time last year. Uh, she's joining us from a studio at Yale. Uh, Kit Reed is is here in the studio with me. She's a resident writer at Wesleyan University and the author of dozens of novels and short story collections, including most recently, Where. She's also represented in this anthology uh, by phone. We'll be talking to Catherine Valenti, uh, a fiction writer and poet, uh, author of more than a dozen books, including more, most recently, The Boy Who Lost Fairylit. She's represented in this anthology as well. So, um, Anne Vandermeer, I'm going to have you get us going here. So, first of all, um, maybe help us out with the term speculative fiction. It seems to have replaced science fiction and, and to be a little bit more inclusive. Well, speculative fiction really can cover a lot of things. It's not just the hardcore science fiction when you think about spaceships and aliens, but it also encompasses anything that's fantastical or supernatural or anything that's non-realistic. So that 
spans a lot. In the anthology that my husband and I did, not only do we have the hard science fiction and fantasy, but we also have surrealism. We have experimental fiction. So it encompasses all of those different things. Um, and and talk a little bit about the um, strategy behind this um, uh, this anthology. I mean, I guess uh, in a way what I want to ask you and what we'll be talking about the entire time is, does this anthology – there's sort of a sense I think that people have that women uh, authors are underrepresented in the world of science fiction and maybe speculative fiction uh, too. And And – and I'm wondering whether that's part of the impulse behind this anthology or the anthology is just meant to collect the best of a certain kind of work. Well, the way that we approach this anthology is we took a look at what went before. That's the way that, that we always do things, to see if there was something that we could do that would make it new and different. There are quite a few other really fantastic, wonderful anthologies out there that deal with just women's fiction, women's speculative fiction, but we wanted to bring a different take to it. So we consider this to be just a small piece of the pie. It's almost like the tip of the iceberg, if you think about it that way, because what we're hoping to do with this anthology is to open up people to all other different kinds of fiction that women are writing. So we wanted to spread this out and not have it just be fantasy or just be science fiction. We wanted to meld both those things. We wanted to have horror in there, supernatural, surrealism. And we also wanted to have a wider reach in that we wanted to have translated fiction. We wanted to have fiction from other countries, some international writers in there as well. But again, it's just such a small piece of this enormous pie. We wanted to give everybody a little bit of taste of a lot of things. If you could think about it like small plates or tapas in a way that kind of gets your appetite going for something more. So that's what my husband and I were trying to accomplish with this particular anthology. Um, I guess I'm also wondering um, whether or not, I mean, I, I think there is this sense, and I, I'm wondering whether it's it's kind of an outdated stereotype or whether there's still some reality to it, that women are less likely to write speculative fiction, mes- women are less likely to read spe- speculative fiction, publishers are less likely to publish speculative fiction. How much of that seems still real to you, and how much of it seems to be something that was true, I don't know, 20 years ago, but and that people still believe? Well, I think that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we keep saying it, we're going to believe it. But I don't really think that that's true. It was interesting. Several years ago, I was asked to judge a writing contest. There's this um, magazine in the United Kingdom called Ms. Lexia. And it's a women's writing magazine. And every couple of months, they will do a fiction contest. And they will have a guest judge do the judging. So for the one that they wanted me to judge, the theme for that that, um, contest was fiction stories that take place 200 years in the future. So they were really surprised that the number of submissions that came in were not as many as they've had in previous themes because it is a general um, uh, magazine. So when they sent me the, the, the stories, they, they said that they were really surprised that normally they get two or three times the size and why aren't there more women writing these kind of stories. So that was something that I struggled with trying to find out what the reasons were. And I also came across something very interesting The magazine, even though we have email, they insisted on sending me the actual copies of the manuscript, so they mailed them to me from from England to Florida. And they were late getting to me because you're going to think this is really strange. I did. Um, The manuscripts were late coming to me because Homeland Security had to open up and check them out. Now, why would Homeland Security be interested in a box full of manuscripts of women writing science fiction? So I got to thinking about that, and I started thinking, well... 
Maybe they think this is dangerous. Maybe that's the whole thing. Women writing science fiction is dangerous, and maybe that's the whole thing. So when I was working on this anthology and I found that story that L. Timmel Duchamp wrote, The Forbidden Words of Margaret A., Mm -hmm. where a woman is um, imprisoned and a law is passed where her words are so dangerous that you can't even have them out there, then I started thinking about that. Well, there's got to be something in there. This, this circular logic that women don't read it, women don't write it, and oh my gosh, if they did, what will happen? And so maybe maybe we just need to let it be and see what will happen and not say women can't do it because clearly they can't. Women are not reading it. Clearly they are. So let's just take all of those stereotypes and get rid of them and stop thinking about it in those terms. Um, Kit Reed, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation here too. And and. So I'm wondering, over the course of your long and storied writing career, whether you ever felt as though you were getting that message from anywhere, that this, that women writers don't do this. Women writers write a different kind uh, of fiction. They don't write this kind of fiction. No, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, a, I had an androgynous name when I started submitting stuff. I would Kit Reed, mm-hmm. and uh, I could be a guy. Uh, there was a long period, which meant that I was getting very frank email no, letters from people, rejections. Um, Dear Mr. Gold, Horace Gold of Galaxy Magazine, um, how does this grab you? And I get back my letter with, on his, on the, in the bottom, handwritten by him, right down the throat and by the lunch. I think if he had known I was a girl, it might not, <laughs> might have been a little different. So it was not an issue for me. I knew that I did not want to be what the contemporary back when dinosaurs walked vision of the American woman was, which spotless house and all that stuff. So I was in rebellion for against, I think, the concept of women as much as anything else. And that's what a lot of the stories, early stories at least, uh, were informed by that. But if it's true that, in fact, writing speculative fiction or science fiction or whatever you wanted to call it at the time, uh, if it's true that you were sort of aided in avoiding some kind of discrimination or some kind of uh, uh, rejection based on gender um, that, that by your name, that means – implicitly you think maybe maybe had your name had you gone by Catherine Reed or something like Marjorie that Marjorie Schultz or Mar- whatever yeah. it would not um i have no idea what kind of response i would have gotten i think that uh i know one thing which is that i am not scientific i don't write things with rocket ships in them or space aliens or any of that and uh what i was writing were basically realistic stories in which one thing was wrong mm-hmm. and uh so I was probably not selling as many of those stories as I would have if I had tried to do the other thing. But I tried to do the other thing, and it came out very badly. As we go along here, uh, I know there's been a lot of social media about this show already. So if you're out there listening and you want to comment or question, our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You may also tweet at us at WNPR Colin. That's WNPR Colin. Um, you know, Anne, uh, this is actually mentioned uh, in your uh, introduction to the anthology, um, this whole question of names. Um, uh, Andre Norton for a while, long time probably was one of the more famous woman science fiction writers. But, I mean, I saw that name on lots of bookshelves I was walking past. It never occurred to me that that was a woman. This whole question of being a little bit um, uh, mysterious about who you were, um, I mean, that, that at least for a while was a real thing. Yes? 
Oh, yes, that's definitely true. There's something else that I wanted to point out, mm-hmm. talking about names and how we, we think about them, is there was actually a study done here at Yale in 2012 mm-hmm. about um, implicit bias and how you feel about science and man, men and women. They actually did a study where they had put together these um, internships, and these people were applying for these internships, and the people that were applying, they took the exact same resumes. Mm-hmm. Everything was exactly the same, totally identical. One had a man's name on it, one had a women's name on it. And nine times out of 10, the man was the one that was selected for the internship. And everything else was exactly the same. We don't think that we have these biases when we're looking at people's names, but we do. Um, And Kit Reed, as you decided to write these kinds of stories, in which, as you say, I mean, maybe one of the ways that we could characterize speculative fiction is that it's fiction in which, at least in some respect, things are not as they are in reality. Um, did you feel inspired by other writers who were women? I mean, was or did you feel inspired by um, other writers who wrote science fiction, speculative fiction, who, who maybe weren't women? Um, I never thought about it, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. I, I read everything I could lay my hands on, and I uh, wrote what I felt like writing. And uh, when I do that, and it's still the way I work, I hope to God someone will like it. And what has happened uh, most recently is that people like it are uh, SF, uh, SFF editors because this isn't a realistic novel. You know, where is not a realistic novel? If, you, if the entire population of a small island disappears, that doesn't really happen except, wait, the Mary Celeste, the crew, mm-hmm. everyone gone, uh, Roanoke Colony. There are these missing um, elements. So uh, for me... It is the near near future, the nearly present, in which something is slightly wrong. And I think maybe the climate is more friendly toward that kind of thing now. Mm-hmm. I don't sell a lot of books because I don't write anything that has rockets, space aliens, or dragons on the cover. And I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, add to this conversation uh, Catherine Valenti uh, as I say fiction writer and poet uh, her books uh, include most recently The Boy Who Lost Fairyland and while we're on this subject of names um, Catherine Valenti and I, I guess you go by Cat is, is that how I should Hi. address you um, yeah that's fine I, I know that um, one, well, one of the I mean obviously you're in this anthology Kit's in this anthology uh, the one name that kind of jumps out uh, at people who don't know very much about speculative fiction that would be me um, as you're even just looking down the, the table of contents is uh, James Tiptree Jr. Uh, I know this is someone you've written an essay about so tell us about uh, the, the person behind James Tiptree Jr. Uh, well, James Tiptree is Alice or was Alice Sheldon, uh, and wrote for many years under uh, both uh, Rakuna Sheldon and um, James Tiptree. But James Tiptree was uh, the one that really took off, and no one knew for a very long time, or at least a very select few knew, that uh, James was a woman. I believe it was Robert Silverberg who called James Tiptree's writing ineluctably male. Uh, and it was it was quite a shock to everyone when uh, the truth was revealed. Uh, it, I mean, she's an extraordinary writer. Uh, her short stories uh, are just absolutely light years ahead of their time. And um, it, it, it's such an object lesson for many of us uh, in in what I don't want to say what you used to have to do because I, I do still think, as Anne said, uh, there there is a bias toward male names even now. But you don't see people feeling like they have to do it anymore. 
Um, but w- when I was writing, I was writing an essay uh, in the form of a letter to James Tiptree as part of a tribute anthology of letters to Tiptree. And one of the things I talked about was I have often wondered uh, if my career would have been different had I been C.M. Valenti or Christopher Valenti. Uh, and the fact that I, I wonder that rather than being absolutely certain uh, that it would have been different is, is a kind of progress. I, I think that is true. Um, all right. So um, we're talking about uh, women in speculative fiction, women in science fiction. And I do invite you to call in if you want to. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You know, um, in uh, Vandermeer, it seems to me that the last time you and I spoke, which was down at the Yale Writers Conference last year, uh, we were um, talking about all these kind of splinter genres that now exist within old existing genres. And and one of the th- just reading up uh, and trying to get ready for this show, um, I discovered that there are all, once again, these kind of splinter genres, these uh, smaller, uh, highly specific genres. And it does seem as though within the world of speculative fiction and science fiction, there are some movements that seem especially friendly towards women or inviting to women writers to work in. Um, I discovered something called, or, I mean, I'm really, I couldn't be more of a babe in the woods here. I, I really am not versed in all this stuff. But I discovered something called urban fantasy uh, that seems like dominated by women. It's Laurel K. Hamilton's Anita Blake series uh, and uh, Kim Harrison's Rachel Morgan novels and the Charlie Madigan series by uh, Kelly Gay. These are, um, um, well, maybe you can tell me a little bit more. I'm assuming this is something that you're pretty conversant with um, about this and, and, and why you think in particular it would be really dominated by women writers. Well, when you talk about urban fantasy, what you're really talking about is paranormal romance. Because in most of those cases, most of those books, that's one of the underlying themes. It's kind of a it's more romance than it is science fiction, and then it has that paranormal supernatural element to it, and that's what makes it um, speculative. So when you when you're thinking about, you know, Lauren K. K. Hamilton and all those other writers, that's the appeal. People like to read that. When you think about um, let's look at the Twilight series. You know, those also have an overriding kind of appeal, a theme of romance and love. And that's one of the things that that you see when you take a look at the romance field as a genre. A lot of the writers in that field are also women, although there's quite a few men, too. And and in some cases, you'll actually see that the that the tables are turned, that you'll see men submitting manuscripts for urban fantasy, and they'll have initials for their names, or they'll have a pseudonym, because they know that that's more likely to get published if it's going to have a woman's name, which, which you know, doesn't bother me a bit. <laughs> um, should, but it doesn't. No. Well, um, yeah, maybe everybody's hiding who they really are. Um, the, um, I, I mean... Uh, Kat Valenti, one of the um, other arguments that I encountered reading up on this is sort of an argument from publishers saying, well, we can't publish what isn't written. Uh, and so in 2013, a woman editor at Tor UK, uh, the United Kingdom version uh, of this uh, science fiction imprint, um, she blogged an analysis. It was a woman editor. She blogged an analysis of submissions. And it, it, it seemed to her that women just didn't submit as many manuscripts, except maybe in some of these subgenres like uh, urban fantasy or paranormal romance, that um, – that women still weren't attracted to writing anything that would sort of fit into this category, at least not as much as men. And in the really straight science fiction, the, the disparity was shocking. It was 78% male submissions, 22% women's submissions. So uh, in, in the uh, piece that's uh, by you that's included in Sisters of the Revolution, uh, you refer to a person who is pretty clearly you as uh, the science fiction writer. When did you start thinking of yourself as a science fiction writer? And, and was that any kind of challenge? Well, I think there's three parts to that. 
uh, question. Um, so, I, I mean, I think part of the reason that you see that discrepancy is uh, the notion of who has the right to speak. I mean, men are told from an early age, not all men, obviously, but a large portion of men are told from an early age that their voice has value and what they say is important and to be listened to. And women are not given the same message by and large. And so there's a level of arrogance that goes with being a writer and with submitting a manuscript at all. And I think that that's part of why we see this discrepancy over and over again. And we're talking about urban fantasy and paranormal romance. And it's a good example of, uh, of moving the goalposts. Joanna Rust wrote a wonderful book called How to Suppress Women's Writing, and uh, it details the ways in which women are excised from the literary record. And one of them is saying, well, a woman wrote it, so it, it's not science fiction, it's not fantasy. Hmm. So though urban fantasy and paranormal romance are some of the best-selling science fiction and fantasy out there, we don't really count it as real, and I think largely because it's written by women, much like romance, it, it gets dismissed. Um, in the story in the anthology, uh, referring to myself as the science fiction writer, it's not myself. It, it, is, it is a fictional story. It, it's very intimate, and so a lot of people really mistake it for being more of a memoir, but it, it, it's a fiction story. Um, I actually still have a hard time thinking of myself as a science fiction writer, though uh, I have written a great deal of it, and I have a science fiction novel coming out this August. Uh, every time I write something that I consider science fiction, people who are reviewing it will end their review saying, well, but it's not really science fiction. It doesn't even seem to actually matter how hard the science is in my science fiction. There is always somebody who says it isn't science fiction, which I find absolutely fascinating. It's been a goal of mine for years to write something that nobody says isn't science fiction. That's amazing. Uh, so, so it's still hard for me to think of myself as that. Yeah, help me understand that. So they say it's not science fiction, but it's what? Help, uh, help me complete that sentence a little bit more. Well, it would be nice if the sentence got completed. I think the implication is, well, it's just fantasy with some uh, bells and whistles on it, or it's not serious science fiction, or it's not hard science fiction. Mm. I mean, we talk about hard and soft science fiction, uh, and I think even even those terms are a bit gendered. Hard science fiction being um, science fiction that's based in, in real science and uh, is a uh, very realistic casting forward of what uh, actual technology might become. Um, and very much rooted in that technology, whereas soft science fiction is a little more loosey-goosey like Star Trek or something like that. Um, I'm not really sure what they mean, except that uh, I, I wrote that science fiction while, while being a lady. Um, I think that, that that's the implication there. Uh, but there's also the kind of idea that science fiction is somewhat superior to fantasy in and of itself uh, because... I mean, my, my interpretation of why people tend to think that is that science fiction still attaches to our world in some way. It says what would happen if this trend in our actual reality were to continue forward, whereas fantasy uh, doesn't take the real world as, as its starting ground always the same way. You know, Kit Reed, there's one part of this um, equation that we, we haven't talked about, and I want to talk about it quite a bit in the in the second segment, but let's talk about it here for a second. Um, and that is, so we've suggested that uh, there might have been reasons at certain times would have, would have been advantageous for a writer like Andre Norton not to be known as a woman, that, that both readers, publishers, whoever, magazine editors didn't know that this was a woman that they were dealing with and didn't experience some uh, of the, the stereotyping and discrimination that Kat's describing here. 
here. But there's another part of this, too, and it's I would imagine I'd be surprised if it didn't touch you at some point, which is that you're a writer of literary fiction. You live within academia to a certain degree. You're on the campus of Wesleyan. And I would assume that being a science fiction writer, I mean, that there might be some, uh, whether you were male or female, being a science fiction writer in in the world of literature, in the world of academia, there might be some people who decide to look down their noses at what they could consider to be some kind of second class genre fiction. Is is there any of that real? Uh, when you say, uh, I, I say SF, which mm-hmm. is speculative fiction, yeah. because that is something where uh, the sky's the limit. You can do anything you want because you are inventing whatever the odd element is in it. Um, I think everyone assumes when you hear the words science fiction, which is why you noticed Anne used SFF, right. science fiction fantasy, um, the assumption is, oh, yeah, space aliens and rockets. Mm-hmm. And very little of the field now is that. Uh, in the tippy beginning, in you know, uh, the prehistoric era, it was all guys, and they were all guys with, I don't know, home chemistry sets or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was idea-based. And uh, I realized as I look back at whatever my early influences were in the field, there were about two, and they were Theodore Sturgeon, who wrote character-based fiction, mm-hmm. and uh, Ray Bradbury, who wrote character-based fiction. Mm-hmm. I had very little interest in the other stuff. And uh, where was I going with this? Well, I don't know, but I mean, let me just sort of um, say that, um, well, first of all, that, you know, for somebody my, my age, and, you know, I grew up kind of with the same book, bunch of books to read that you grew up. I mean, if if somebody asked me in the name of a woman science fiction writer when I was 20 years old, I would have said Ursula Le Guin, and then I would have, have had nothing else to say, oh, pretty right? Pretty much. Uh, and I, since, for me, this genre embraced or began, not originated by, but Shirley Jackson was back there doing that stuff. And uh, what interested me was that she'd written these things that were appearing in The New Yorker. And at that point, I thought, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. So I was always aiming for the upper benchmark Hmm. uh, when I was doing what I did. And I have paid for it, and I don't care. All right. So I want to come back to that in the second segment a little bit. And Wayne, we've got a call from Wayne. Please hang on here. Uh, We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of this. If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. All right. We are talking about women uh, in the world of speculative fiction. Uh, that includes science fiction, but a lot of other things besides. With us, Anne Vandermeer, she's a publisher and editor, who recently co-edited the, uh, co-edited the anthology Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative fiction anthology. Kit Reed is with us, resident writer at Wesleyan University and the author of dozens of novels and short story collections, including most recently, Where. Catherine Valenti is with us. She's a fiction writer and poet. Her um, books include most recently The Boy Who Lost Fairyland. Both Kit and uh, Kat are Oh boy, that's Kit and Kat. How did we do that? Uh, both Kit and Catherine, let's say, are included in the anthology. We're talking about Sisters of the Revolution. They each have pieces in there. So um, I, I, in our notes for this um, show, I sort of brought up what I think we came to call in the notes the elephant in the room. And I, it looks like Wayne, one of our callers here at 860-275-7266, wants to bring up that elephant too. Hi, Wayne. You're on the air. And the elephant isn't there. Wayne, are you there? 
Uh, so we're, we're having a science fiction day with our computers here today, things that are, are wrong. So I'm, I'm just going to uh, come back to our guests here then. So, you know, we, we certainly can talk about what it was like in, you know, I think what really were kind of the bad old days when I, I, women really were underrepresented in, in this genre for whatever reason. And we'll get to those reasons, too. But um, but in Vandermeer, um, it's it's hard to imagine that um, in the post-J.K. Rowling world, or at least in the middle of the J.K. Rowling world, that publishers wouldn't be just scouring the earth to find women writing speculative fiction, right? This is, by a lot of measures, the best-selling series of all time, one of the best-selling authors of all time. Is, is it, in terms of at least a publisher interest, does it seem to you like it, that would be a game-changer? Well, it's it's interesting to me. I wanted to go back to what Kat was saying about women's voices mm-hmm. and and submitting. As as a publisher and editor myself, I found it quite a challenge to get women to submit to me, and I put out all kinds of invitations, trying to get as many women to submit as possible. the The editor that you were talking about in 2013 mm-hmm. that said we can't publish what we don't see, mm-hmm. I experienced the same things that she did, where. When I was getting submissions, when I was the editor of Weird Tales magazine, for every submission I got from a woman, I got 20 submissions from men. Mm. So it truly was a numbers game. And and yes, it is more of a challenge and it is more difficult to get those stories from women, to get them to submit them to you for all of those reasons that Kat said, because of that lack of confidence, because because we're not told that we can do it. We're not told that it's okay to submit over and over and over again. So... I have spent the last 20 years virtually reaching out to women as much as I can to get them to send me stories, to get them to send me another story and then another story, and to let them know that it is okay and to publish all of those things. And when those stories get out there in the world, there are people that want to read them. There, There's a large audience for that type of fiction, like you said, J.K. Rowling. Well, some people might look at her fiction and say, well, it's YA, and YA is just bursting at the seams. Everybody and their brother is writing a YA novel, and I think it's wonderful. But there's, but adult literature is different from YA literature, and I'm probably going to get a lot of people saying things to me mm-hmm. about that, but um, there is quite a difference between that. And I think that publishers that are looking for the next big thing are also going to be looking for something else as well. Although it's interesting, you know, the, when I first heard about J.K. Rowling, the books had not been published in America yet. And the fir- I think the first article I ever read about the Harry Potter book, the first Harry Potter book, was about the fact that it had become so popular among adults uh, in England, uh, particularly adults who were using public transportation, that I think there might have even been a special edition published that didn't look like uh, the other things. But uh, but they, they had ways of disguising what they were reading because, in fact, in all the ways that we were talking about prejudices that exist against science fiction, against women, whatever— there was another prejudice, which is that adults should not be seen reading a book like this in other in other circumstances besides reading it directly to a child. So um, th- these prejudices are kind of all over the place. Um, well, I just uh, since you said that thing about submissions, let's go back to Cat for a second. Um, Catherine Valenti, did you? We talked a little bit about you know how whatever struggle you have to think of yourself as a science fiction writer and to be accepted uh, as a science fiction writer by reviewers who claim it's that's not what you're writing. But how about that first the first few submissions when you sent things in? Um, were, did you feel as though you were fighting some invisible tide? Um, I, I mean, my path to publication is a, a somewhat strange and unusual one. Uh, I, I ha- got a novel contract before I'd ever published a short story. Uh, 
I had a number of rejections, and all of them said, this is the most beautiful book we've ever read, and we're absolutely not going to publish it. <laughs> um, I, I didn't really chalk that up to my being a woman at the time. Um, the first time that it really became clear to me that being a woman was going to be a thing was the first interview I ever gave about my first novel, which was called The Labyrinth. And actually, Jeff Vandermeer wrote the introduction to that book. Um, I don't remember who the interviewer was, but he asked me, the last question was whether I considered my writing essentially feminine, uh, which I had not. And I still don't consider that uh, sentences and syntax have gender. Uh, But in almost every interview for the first five years of my career, I was asked about the femininity of my writing, not my own femininity or my characters or my protagonists or anything, but that my writing was somehow feminine. And that's still something I find bizarre and people don't ask quite as much anymore. Um, but it's still, it's still a thing because I write very rich prose. Um, I, people who don't like it, call it flowery. People who do call it ornate or lush. Um, but you know, I'm pretty sure that, that William Shakespeare and Lord Byron wrote pretty flowery prose and then I'm, generally positive they were male. Um, So I I don't think that it does have any kind of bearing on the gender of the author, but that has been a huge part of uh, my career, answering those kinds of questions. Um, Susan Jane Bigelow tweets to us, women self-reject, we feel we are not welcome. It makes a difference. There is much writing on this out there, the whole idea of maybe you don't even submit because you feel like you wouldn't be welcome in this particular genre. Um, I want to come back to something I talked about before, Kit, and I'm going to come back to you, and I'll give you a couple of specific examples. So when Doris Lessing, who, I mean, you can't get much more literary than Doris Lessing. So then Doris Lessing starts writing this, what winds up being this five-book series, Canopus in Argos. Um, And she took a certain amount of crap from the literary establishment that she was suddenly writing science fiction. She's this. She's Doris Lessing. You know, what are you doing writing science fiction? Um, and and Margaret Atwood in a lot of the books that she's written. But for, I was astonished when Alex Dubin, who's been producing this show, told me that um, Margaret Atwood denied that um, Oryx and Crake. Uh, was science fiction. I mean, I can't think of a book that, I mean, I can't think of a, a criterion for science fiction that Oryx and Craig doesn't meet. But it, it sounds like within the literary establishment, I'm going to go back to that question I asked you before, within the literary establishment, people, some people feel it's just not a good thing for a literary writer to be writing science fiction. Well, we, we can come back to the question about whether it's a good thing for a science fiction writer to be literary, too, because that's uh, another question. But how about that first one? Do you, I mean, do you, is that a real thing, this idea that, you know, wow, you're Doris Lessing. Why are you writing science fiction? I think it probably is a real thing. I have no doubt that it's a real thing. And uh, as I said, people, if you use the words science fiction, a lot of people like bridle and like snore, turn away, uh, no time for that now, uh, doing these very important things. But it's a sword that cuts both ways. Hmm. So, um, uh, and Anne Vandermeer, I mean, is there anybody besides Margaret Atwood who doesn't think that Oryx and Crake is a science fiction novel? <laughs> well, you got to look at it this way. Science fiction is fiction about the future. Hmm. And I remember uh, Margaret Atwood came to FSU once and spoke. And what I found really interesting is she said that her favorite magazine growing up was Weird Tales. Mm. And I know that she says that 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 book is not science fiction. And for the longest time, she would tell people that she doesn't write science fiction. But I think she's kind of backtracked on that a little bit and now admits to, yeah, maybe it is. But what she used to say 
her answer to that was, well, what I write is not science fiction because I write about what could happen. These things are all possible. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what science fiction is. If you write science fiction that's way far in the future, like a million years in the future, you're almost writing science fantasy, really. But if you're talking about extrapolating something that might happen 100 years from now, that's definitely what science fiction is because you're trying to imagine what the world is going to be sometime in the future. That's what she's doing. That's what science fiction is. There shouldn't be this this divide between literary science fiction and literary realism. It's, you know, to me, is it a good story? Are you are you engaging me? Am I compelled to turn the page? That's what I really want to know. The, the science fiction elements in her story is not what makes it so wonderful. It's all the other stuff around it. That's just part of it. Um, you know, in Cat Valentia, there there might be some evidence and some reason to suppose that you belong to a generation where it's gonna, the divisions are going to be less strict. That you don't have to check out of one hotel to check into the other. That you you that a writer like Karen Russell uh, can write something that looks like speculative fiction, but but not have to give up any kind of literary gravitas to do that. I mean, does that does that seem like a legitimate argument to you? I, I do think that's right, in part because of the vast, vast popularity of science fiction and fantasy in film and television right now. Uh, I mean, science fiction rules the roost, and people are absolutely willing, adults are absolutely willing to uh, put down their money for it. And I think that's really changing the landscape of, of speculative fiction all over the place. And on top of that, you have writers like Kazuo Ishiguro writing The Buried Giant, which is a King Arthur fantasy with a dragon in it. And he also said that wasn't fantasy, which uh, I got three chapters in and started laughing at the idea that it wasn't fantasy. Um, literary, the literary establishment, as you call it, uh, they, they do love to look down their noses at science fiction and fantasy, but they love to play with our toys. Um, <laughs> there are many, many literary writers who have uh, written absolutely speculative novels and short stories, and most of the time they will claim that it's not speculative fiction for, for whatever reason um, they've come up with. But I think that what they mean is that they've not written speculative fiction before, so they don't consider anything they write to be speculative fiction because it's not how they think of themselves as an artist. But we see over and over again uh, literary establishment writers turning to uh, the tropes of science fiction and fantasy. Well, Ishiguro has also written a dystopian cloning novel, so um, yep. <laughs> he's been doing a lot of slumming. Um, all right, so let's take a little break here. When we come back, we'll be wrapping up this conversation. Wow, the show's flying by here. Please feel free to call in or tweet us at WNPR Colin. Why aren't we doing a show about the way male novelists are underrepresented in chiclet? Today's show was produced by Alex Dubin, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Alex, Hallie St. Germain, and Allison Ehrenreich. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ray Bradbury. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's novel, The Blenders of Xanadu, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, our annual Song of the Summer show. And now, 
back to Colin. Well, actually, we did find out that uh, men are writing chiclet, but they're uh, using different names or initials or things like that. Uh, yes, tomorrow is the uh, Song of the Summer show, a, a, a show that always gets everybody really grumpy because nobody ever likes the Song of the Summer, which raises an interesting question. How can it be the Song of the Summer if nobody likes it? Uh, anyway, we'll deal with that tomorrow. Now, today, our no- if you want to call in 860-275-7266, we're talking about women in speculative fiction. You may tweet us at WNPR, Colin. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to play a little clip. Of, this is last year. Ursula Le Guin, who I mentioned before, uh, was awarded the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. In her speech, she took the opportunity to talk about science fiction and fantasy. I rejoice in accepting it for and sharing it with all the writers who were excluded from literature for so long my fellow authors of fantasy and science fiction, writers of the imagination, who for the last 50 years watched the beautiful wars go to the so-called realists. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. You know, I want to talk about this question of realists, too, because I think this sword sliced both ways in the past, although maybe not so much uh, anymore. So, um, uh, and so, uh, Kit Reed, I'm going to start with you. You know, I was talking about Doris Lessing before, and the other thing that happened with Doris Lessing was that her five-volume science fiction uh, series, Canopus and Argos, was obviously discovered and embraced by fans of science fiction. And she claimed, anyway, that when she tried to lead those fans who had discovered her work and loved it um, back to other Doris Lessing novels and back to the world of so-called realist fiction, they didn't want to come with her in large part. They said, I, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> um, I'm interested in, in this other kind of highly imaginative work. And, and I, I wonder about that for you. I mean, you've written both kinds of, of books, and, and you're certainly not identified or branded, I don't think, as strictly a science fiction writer or a speculative fiction writer. Um, but, but I wonder to whatever degree you are embraced and understood that way, it's hard to get people who like that kind of thing to read more realistic fiction. It's a very interesting thing. I, I Financial Times reviewed the short story collect. No, I guess uh, an earlier collection. And uh, Kit Reed is too fantastical for the literary and too literary for the <laughs> fantastical. It's uh, kind of like the editor who said at the tippy beginning when, I guess, Armed Camps, which was a dystopia, crossed her desk uh, after a realistic novel you're going to have a long and interesting career. <laughs> it's the total Chinese curse. Um, all right. So, um, and, and, and so in, in Vandermeer, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that too, that the, this, that kind of notion that there's, there was, and I don't think, I'm not sure there is anymore, but there was this kind of hyper-specific readership for a certain kind of speculative fiction, and they weren't willing to travel towards the world of realism, even with an author like Doris Lessing, whom they had already decided that they liked. Well, I think you have to look at it this way. The early science fiction stories were more about the ideas, more about the gadgets and the technology, 
And then in the 60s and the 70s, there was a new wave of science fiction coming out of the UK. There was a magazine called uh, New Worlds, and it published a lot of that early fiction, um, writers like Michael Moorcock. And that kind of opened up what science fiction could be, because like Ursula K. Le Guin is talking about with the future, how you take a look at it and what you see the world is going to be. So when you're looking at this science fiction in the future, you're looking at not just the technology, but how do we as human beings relate to this technology? What are our relationships to the nature of the world? So those are the kinds of subject matters that you see coming up in the in the science fiction of today and what I'm hoping you'll see in the future. And I think that that's kind of blurring the lines between this literary realism and this literary science fiction. And I, I think that if readers will just take that leap of faith and come along – they will find that they will really enjoy that fiction. The people that read literary um, realism will enjoy that type of fiction that explores the what-ifs of the future. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is sort of an Alex Dubin question from the notes, but it's such a great question. I, I almost should just read it um, as as he wrote it. Uh, but And I'll ask it to you, Kat Valenti. Um, he writes, are we living in a time when we're surrounded by so much that is fantastic and almost magical that so-called realism is almost outdated? Uh, is this the only way that we can make sense of the world today? I thought it was a great question, Kat, just because, yeah, I, I that's how I feel. I feel as though, it, you know, you almost have to think of, a fiction that's completely 100% grounded in reality and not at all shaped or twisted at all by by all of the technological movement in life uh, today, that seems more like a niche or a genre than the stuff that we've been talking about so long. But react to that. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, the word realism is useful because it points out that what is considered normal literature is actually a genre with its own tropes and cliches. Uh, and and traditional settings, um, science fiction and fantasy, they do accurately depict uh, the world that we live in in a lot of ways, and not just in the sense of technology, but the fact is that the emotional reality of being a human being is not always a linear one that progresses neatly from rising action to climax to falling action. Uh, in our memories, we drop things out and bring things in that never happened, uh, we patchwork together an identity from things that we remember, things that people have told us, and it often has nothing to do with what actually happened. And science fiction and fantasy are uniquely positioned to discuss that and to present uh, the internal reality of being alive on planet Earth uh, in a way that realism doesn't always attempt to do or, or, or even often uh, attempt to do. I think that uh, the way that we literalize metaphor is is one of the great values of our genre. The the classic example of that being that uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer took high school as hell and made uh, a massive story uh, about it that that was so much more resonant than years of Beverly Hills 90210 filmed in the same place, uh, telling us in words that high school was hell. To make that literal uh, made it so much more poignant to us. But I find it continually fascinating that as a genre, we have to argue for our existence in a way that, that most other genres don't. We have to argue for our value uh, when the fact is that it's clear that we have value when people love science fiction and fantasy with a love that is paralleled in, in no other genre. I really fell in love with Buffy. I, someone. Yeah, I, I fell in love with Buffy, the uh, the episode where they were fighting vampires and discussing the fact that they had to take their SATs the next morning. I thought, all right, that's... 
that's the way it really should be. Hey, we just have a tiny bit of time left, so I'm going to ask all three of you to do something. Let's all assume that you all uh, love and admire each other's work tremendously and are big fans of one another. But I'd like you to, for the person who's listening out here, who's thinking, wow, you know, I mean, I, I don't read a lot of speculative fiction, and I haven't really made any effort to discover women writers within the world of speculative fiction, um, you know, but this sounds kind of intriguing. Maybe I'd like to, you know, go track somebody else down. Uh, so let's all uh, agree that we love the work of Kit Reed and Catherine Valenti and that Anne Vandermeer has been doing some incredible work here bringing this um, fiction to our attention. I'd like you to each maybe recommend one more writer. And Catherine Valenti, since you have the floor right la- now, I'll let you go first. If somebody's listening out there and wants to dip their toe in, who, who do you love that you'd love to see someone else discover? Uh, picking one is so, so, so difficult. Um, I'll, I'll throw out an author that I'm reading one of her novels right now. Caitlin Kiernan uh, is an extraordinary uh, author, and her work has just gotten better with time. Her most recent two novels, The Drowning Girl and The Red Tree, are some of my favorite, um, they're, I, I would say, horror fantasy uh, novels. They're just absolutely extraordinary. All right, uh, Kit Reed, you get to go next. I'm afraid I'm going to run resolutely in the opposite direction. Someone who has a mainstream reputation who um, the field needs to know, know because the stories are so dense is George Saunders. Ah, George and he's Saunders. a guy. Yeah, he's a guy. You really did run away from the question. <clears throat> All right, so, and Ann Vandermeer, I know you've got sort of a lot of children in this book, and so it's hard to pick a favorite. Uh, and it doesn't have to be somebody from the anthology, but who oh, would you gosh. like to have someone discover? Okay. I am going to say Vandana Singh. She is in this anthology, but also I just recently published um, one of her short stories on Tor.com. And I I recommend to everyone to please read that story. It was published in April. Her name is Vandana Singh, S-I-N-G-H. All right. Thanks so much to Ann Vandermeer, Kit Reed, and Catherine Valenti. Oh, can I nominate one? I mean, I, this is going to prove how little I know about any of this, but I discovered in the anthology Octavia Butler. I'm going to go start reading Octavia Butler. Uh, the story here in the anthology just knocked me out. Thanks to Alex Dubin for conceiving and producing this show. Okay, this story takes place in a tampon-powered spaceship. No. Okay, birth control pills and a water supply turn men into... No. Okay, um, how about the only woman left on planet Earth is a 30-foot-tall, bisexual... Go on. Transracial... No. Uh, 